Well, we are continuing our series in Mark. Maybe turn this up just a little bit, David. We're going to be looking at the last portion of Mark chapter 4. So if you find your way in your Bibles there, we will read it in just a second. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Uh, we leave behind the parables of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And now, in a sense, we get a lesson on the ground. The disciples are still being taught. They might not recognize it, but they're still being taught. But they're being taught as they experience a storm. Let's read that account starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray before we continue. Father, we come now with our Bibles open, reading with our physical eyes words on physical pages, but we are asking now that we would see in a much deeper way than that, and that your Spirit would take these truths that you have kept for us. And that it would change us, Father. That we would trust you more as we come before your word. And see you more clearly in your word. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite cartoons as a child and and still is one of my favorite cartoons, although I don't read it as much anymore, um, was Calvin and Hobbes. And if you remember those cartoons, you remember that in, in different parts of them, uh, Calvin's dad is often emphasizing to young Calvin that what he was going through, particularly the unpleasant things that he was going through, that these were building character in his young son, Calvin. At one point, his dad suggests to Calvin they go camping, and Calvin relays this news to his friend Hobbes, And he says, Hobbes, did you hear? Mom and Dad are taking us camping. We get to live in a tent and go fishing and canoeing. Won't that be fun? We'll be roughing it, living off the land, no TV or radio or... Uh Uh-oh. What's wrong? This sounds suspiciously like one of Dad's plots to build my character. And if you know that cartoon, it goes on, and it is indeed a, a, a character-building event in the life of Calvin, or at least his father thinks so, because uh, the camping trip turns into a disaster. And I couldn't find the exact quote, but there's one time that Calvin's dad makes this statement to Calvin and says, this is building character in you. And Calvin says, yes, something, this isn't the exact statement, but something along these lines, yes, but why can't char- character ever happen by eating ice cream on a couch? 
And we may wonder the same thing at times, but yet experience has taught us that Calvin's dad is right. That it's often the hard seasons of our lives where the most growth in our life happens. The saying, no pain, no gain, is at least partially true. But this is also true in the spiritual realm as well, that it's often in the seasons of difficulties and the seasons of, of trials and hardships where God brings the most, most growth into our lives. We've given this morning's passage the title, Lessons from the Midst of the Storm. And that's a slightly different from the title in your bulletin. Uh, but in this passage, we see the disciples going through a, a physical and literal storm on the Sea of Galilee. And like Calvin and like we have discovered in our own lives, coming out on the other side of this storm, they realized that Jesus was teaching them something in the midst of it. In the midst of it. You may notice as we read or as we read through this passage, and perhaps you didn't, but now you will as you look back through it, that this story has a lot of detail in it. As we've been going through Mark, one of the things that we have noticed is that Mark does not pay much attention to detail, typically. He kind of gives the, the big picture of the story and then moves on to the next story. And when we compare his account to other gospel writers, to Matthew and Luke in particular, the synoptic gospels, we often see that Mark's gospel is very succinct. And I'll be honest, that's one of the reasons I picked Mark to preach through first, because I thought, well, it's shorter, it might be a little easier, and I found out that that's not quite the case. But Mark usually does not include much detail in his stories. However, this account is just the opposite. His account of this story, while it is in also in Matthew and Luke, his account is longer and his account is more detailed. For examples, if you look in your Bible, and you don't have to flip to Matthew and Luke, but in, in Matthew and Luke it says that Jesus simply was asleep in the midst of the storm. But you'll notice in Mark that Mark adds that he was asleep, but he was asleep in the stern. And more than that, he was asleep on a cushion in the storm. Mark is the only one who says that there were other boats that were with Jesus as this journey begins. Mark points out that the boat was in not simply a storm, but a a great storm and that the waves are breaking into the boat. Mark gives more details than the other gospel writers and more details than he usually gives in a story. And we get the feeling as we see these details that we are reading a first-hand account of this event. It's an eyewitness report. Now, the gospel of Mark is written by John Mark. Mark was not a disciple or a follower of Jesus at the time, but as we've mentioned as we've been going through this book, that Mark was a close friend of Peter. In fact, Mark was the secretary of Peter. And what we read when we're reading Mark is we're reading through the lens of the experiences and through the eyes of Peter. And Peter was one of the disciples on this boat. He was one of the ones who thought that he was about to perish. He was one of the ones who was bailing out water as the sea poured into their tiny vessel. He was the one of the ones who yelled at Jesus to wake up and to do something about this storm. This is Peter's account of the story. And as is often the case when someone goes through a life-threatening event, details are often noticed and remembered. This week, I, I heard someone telling the story of someone who was in a motorcycle accident. It was at work. I can't remember who it was. Uh, but they were in a motorcycle accident, and they hit the car in front of them, and they went flying over top of the car. And they said what they remember is as they were going over the windshield, seeing the whites of the eyes of the passengers in the car. And the person ended up being all right. Uh, but maybe you've had a similar 
situation where you were in a life-threatening event and you come out the other side and you remember details about that event that you probably would not normally have noticed. Details often stick out to us when we are in life-threatening situations. But also when we look back on them, lessons are often learned and remembered from these experiences. And as we read the story of Peter looking back on this moment in the midst of the storm, there are four lessons that I want us to take notice of that come out of this experience. Four lessons that I think that stuck with Peter and prepared him for the life of faithfully following and serving Jesus that lay before him. Because there were many other storms that Peter would encounter along the way. And this was a preparing ground for his life of ministry. And these four lessons are not original with me. One of the Christian classics that many will say is a book that you should read. And I can't say that because I have not yet read it. And I have it on my shelf and I've read parts of it. Uh, But the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And Ryle devotes a whole chapter to this account from Mark chapter 4. So I'm borrowing these lessons from him because I found them to be encouraging in my own life as I studied this passage this week. And the first lesson is this, lessons from the midst of the storm. First lesson is this, following Christ will not prevent us from having earthly sorrows and troubles. Following Christ will not prevent us, or will not prevent our having earthly sorrows and troubles. We find the disciples in this story in the the midst of a great windstorm. There are three times in this passage, at least in the ESV and in the original Greek, there's three times that the word great is used. There's a great storm, then there's a great calm, and finally in the disciples there is a great fear. And this word great is the Greek word megas, which means remarkable or out of the ordinary, either in degree, magnitude, or effect. And it's where we get the word mega. So this is a mega Storm, a a mega windstorm. And that word windstorm refers to hurricane-like conditions. Lots of rain and lots of wind. And it was a storm that was so severe that these seasoned fishermen thought that this was going to be their last rodeo. They thought that this storm was going to do them in. Remember who was on the boat with Jesus. We don't know if all the disciples were, but many of them were on the boat with Jesus. And these disciples, many of them, had spent their life on the Sea of Galilee. They made their living as fishermen on this very sea. They spent hours and hours on the sea. And this sea, that due to its conditions, uh, the Sea of Galilee is the, the lowest body of water, the lowest freshwater, of, freshwater body of water in the world. It's 700 feet below sea level, and it is surrounded by mountains. It's down in a valley, and these conditions lead to frequent storms like this one. And that's the reason why we often see the disciples fishing at night. You can hear Peter telling Jesus, we've fished all night. And they would fish at night because there was less of a chance of this kind of storm happening. But there was frequent storms during the day on the Sea of Galilee. But now they find themselves at night in the midst of a storm. But notice why they are in the midst of this storm. Notice why they are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at night. It wasn't because they were out fishing. It wasn't because they decided they wanted to go on a a trip. But they were caught in this storm. Notice in verse 35, 
They were caught in this storm because Jesus told them to go to the other side of the lake. They were there because they were being obedient to Jesus. Oftentimes when storms come into our lives, when we experience trials and difficulties, one of the first questions that we often ask ourselves is, okay, what did I do wrong? Uh, What did I do to deserve this outcome in my life? If we are a follower of Jesus and seeking to be obedient to his call on our lives, one of the things that we might ask of ourselves is, okay, what step did I take to get outside of the will of God? Uh, What memo did I miss? What directional instruction did I not hear? And certainly there are times in our lives when we experience storms because of our disobedience to God. As you read this story, you might be reminded of another person who was in the midst of a storm and sleeping on a boat in the midst of the storm. Jonah in the Old Testament. But Jonah found himself in that storm because he was running from God. He was being disobedient to God. But yet here we find the disciples on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. They are being obedient to God, obeying his will, following his command, and they find themselves in the middle of the storm. Again, we too will find ourselves in storms when we, we, like Jonah, are disobedient to God, when we try to run from his will for our lives. When we sin, we bring storms, we bring consequences into our lives. Bad choices will bring consequences into our lives. We should not be surprised when we experience a financial storm because we have been irresponsible with our money. We should not be surprised when our marriages are a bit stormy because we do not do the things that are needed to build a healthy marriage. Or on the other side, if we are not being faithful to our spouse and we are doing things to destroy our marriage, we should not be surprised or not blame God when there's storms that come into our lives. We should not be surprised when we are in the midst of a spiritual storm when we have not spent time in prayer and in God's Word. But there are times when we are doing everything right and yet we still find ourselves in the midst of this storm or midst of the storm. This story reminds us there are times when being obedient to God will lead us into the storm. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle says this, If you are a believer, you must reckon on having your share of sicknesses, pains, of sorrows and tears, of losses and crosses, of deaths and bereavements, of partings and separations, of vexations and disappointments, so long as you are in the body. Christ never undertakes that you shall get to heaven without these. He has undertaken that all who come to him shall have all things pertaining to life and godliness. But he has never undertaken that he will make them prosperous or rich or healthy and that death and sorrow shall never come to their family. Last week, we, or a few weeks ago, we covered a little bit of this when we looked at the parable of the soils. And we, we mentioned that many fall away from faith. Many fall away from faith when the sun comes, when trials and persecutions come because they have bought into the lie that many charlatans masquerading as preachers have sold to them. That when you come to Jesus, your life will be full of health, wealth, happiness and roses. We see in this story that that is just not true. We see that all throughout the Bible, that God's people are not exempt from the storms of life. In fact, we see the complete opposite And that is that we may and will experience more storms because we are God's people. We are living in a world that is hostile to God and his ways. We are living in a world that put to death the son of God. Why should we not expect trials and tribulations? 
We read from Ephesians chapter 2. And at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that our condition before, we, before God saved us, our condition is that we were simply going along with the flow of the world. We were following the prince of this air. But if you flip back in Ephesians to chapter 6, you find that we go from going with the flow and going with the prince of this world to wrestling against them. We should not be surprised when in this world we experience storms as a Christian. As I thought of this point in my mind, as I thought of this point, my mind went to Acts chapter 9. And Acts chapter 9 is a story of Saul's conversion where Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the apostle to the church. And in the middle of that transition, at the beginning of his conversion, Paul is sent to Ananias. And before Paul is sent to Ananias, Jesus comes to Ananias and says he's coming. And of course, Ananias, if you know the story, is very hesitant about this. But Jesus tells him, he says, Ananias, one of the first things I'm going to tell Paul is how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. Now, that's not a very good sales pitch. But yet we know that Paul signs up for it. Or Paul is converted and Paul becomes, Saul becomes Paul. But at the very beginning, Jesus says, this is what I'm going to show him. He is going to suffer much for the sake of my name. And we can read in his letters, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where it just lists, Paul just lists thing after thing after thing that he suffered for the name of Jesus. Becoming a Christian does not exclude you from sufferings. In fact, God sometimes leads us into storms so that he can shape us and that he can mold us into what he wants us to become. It's the first lesson from the midst of this storm. Following Christ will not prevent our having earthly sorrows and troubles. The second lesson, and, and these might all you read these and think, okay, these aren't that profound. But yet we need to be reminded of these things, especially when we are in the midst of a storm. Second lesson is this. Jesus really and truly was a man. Jesus really and truly was a man. In this story, perhaps what we are captivated the most by with when it comes to Jesus is his deity. We see an incredible display of the deity and the power of Jesus as he commands the storm and it instantly becomes still. But before that, we see just as clear and I think perhaps even more powerful, a more powerful display of his humanity as we see Jesus asleep on the cushion in the stern. Mark tells us that this journey across the lake took place on that day, on the evening of that day. If we look back to the first verses of this chapter of chapter 4 in Mark, we remember what this day and how this day began. It began on the beach at the Sea of Galilee where a crowd gathered to Jesus, a crowd so large that he had to call for a boat so that he could come a little distance off the shore and preach. He used this boat as a makeshift pulpit and he spent all day out in the hot sun preaching and teaching in parables to the crowd. And now after this long day of teaching, Jesus is exhausted. He's so exhausted that he sleeps in the midst of a raging storm. The one who in a second will be able to summon the sea because he is the creator of the sea is worn out from teaching. Now that in itself is amazing to think about. But think about that in relation to the question that the disciples ask of Jesus when they wake him up. And, and I say it's a question, but it's, it's more of an accusation. 
They wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Notice the question is, Hey, Jesus, can you help us bail, bail water here a little bit? We could use an extra hand. The question isn't, Jesus, you know, we've seen some miraculous things that you've done. Is there any possibility that you could do something about this storm? The question is not one of his ability. But the question is one of his compassion. The question is one of his character. Do you even care about us, Jesus? But think about that question again in relation to this point. Does he care? Well, the fact that he is there with them. The fact that he is in the boat with them tells them how much he cares. He is the Son of God. He is the jewel of heaven's crown. He is the theme of heaven's praises. He is the one who created all things. And he has become flesh. So much so that a day of teaching will wear him out. He created the whole world with his words, but yet teaching the crowd in the hot sun that he created has worn him out. He has come to earth and he is in the midst of the boat. Here he is in the boat in the midst of the storm with him. Does he care? Yes, he cares. He cares for them more than they are capable of understanding. But yet, if we're honest, we are prone to ask that same question, aren't we? When we are in the storms of our lives, the the question often isn't, God, can you do anything about this? Often the question is, God, do you even see me? God, do you even care about me? Well, we can take comfort in the fact that we see this question being asked over and over throughout the Bible. The Psalms frequently cry out to God and ask, are you even paying attention to them? In fact, there's, there's one Psalm that cries out to God is similar to what the disciples do and say, God, are you asleep? Throughout Job, Job continues to question God's power, but he questions God's care for him. Do you have a heart? Do you, do you care about me? Do you see me? The story of Martha and Mary. Martha asked Jesus the question, Jesus, don't you care about me? I've done, here I am doing all this work while Mary sits at your feet doing nothing. Do you even care? This is a common question throughout the Bible. But yet it's a question that we no longer need to ask. As we see Jesus here in the boat, asleep on this cushion, we know that that's a question we don't have to ask. That's the question that you are asking as you are in the midst of this storm. God, do you even care? I invite you to take a long look at this verse, verse 38. Does he care? Look at him sleeping on the cushion of the boat. Does he care? Look, at, look back to the manger where he lay as a babe. Does he care? Look to the cross where he will hang naked and dying and alone. Does he care? Yes, He cares. The the incarnation is a resounding answer. Yes, I care for you so much. So much that this is what I will do to care for you. He he cares so much that he was willing to get down into the boat with us. He He cares so much that he was willing to get into the storm with us. Hebrews tells us that as we look at Jesus asleep on the cushion, we are reminded that the one who sits on the throne 
is the one who cares for us. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, familiar verses to us, but ones we never need to forget or get past. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As you look at Hebrews 4 and look and think back to Jesus in the boat, do you see your high priest wearied and exhausted asleep on the cushion? He knows your weaknesses. Do you see your high priest in the midst of the storm? He, he knows the temptation to fear and be overwhelmed. Uh, do you see your high priest rebuking the wind and the waves? He is able to meet. To, he is able to help in your time of need. Jesus really and truly was a man. This was no act. This was no mirage. He took on flesh so that we may no longer wonder about the question, do you, sorry, do you care for us? Jesus really and truly was a man. But then we turn to his deity. And that is that Jesus has all power. That's the third lesson in this story. Jesus has all power. We could simply relabel point two and say Jesus really and truly was God. But what I want you to see in this story is the power that he has as God. We move from his humanity to his deity as we see Jesus awoken from his slumber and rebuke the wind and the waves. He would, they awoke him or, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and, the, and said to the sea, peace be still, which literally means be quiet and be muzzled. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It's already on the wall there from the message. Awake now, Jesus, awake now. He told the wind to pipe down and said to the sea, quiet, settle down. I love this line. The wind ran out of breath. The sea became smooth as glass. In fact, that, that is the title of Eugene Peterson's heading here of this section. The wind ran out of breath. At the command of Jesus, the sea goes from experiencing a great storm. Remember that three times the word mega is used. A mega storm. And now we see in this verse it goes from mega storm to mega calm. Peterson says smooth as glass. And here is why when we combine these first three lessons, we see why we need not fear the storms of life that may come or that will come. Because when we go through the storms in our boat, we have the one who can still even the greatest storm. D.A. Carson had a quote that came across one of my social media sites this week. And it says, he said this, I don't know where he wrote this, but he said to walk into the unknown with a God of unqualified power and unfailing goodness is safer than a known way. To walk into the unknown with a God of unqualified power and unfailing goodness is safer than to walk in a known way. Now, does this mean that he will always calm the storm? No, we know that he does not always calm the storm. We see that in our own experiences, but we also see it throughout Scripture. Read Hebrews chapter 11. We see great men and women of faith who perished in the storms of persecution. We see that throughout church history. 
Sometimes He does not calm the storm. But I love what one person said. don't know who the author of this. Sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes He lets the storm rage and calms His child. Sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes He calms His child in the midst of the storm. And He calms His child by in the midst of the storm reminding them and reminding us of who He is. Notice the descriptions of how the disciples view Jesus as we progress through this story in Mark chapter 4. First in verse 36, Mark adds this little detail. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Verse 38, they cry out to him and refer to him for the first time as, as teacher, as rabbi. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? But by the end of the story... The way they view Jesus is we have no clue who this person is. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Alistair Begg said they had brought Jesus along just as he was, but now they are left to discover who he really is. They brought Jesus along just as he was, but now they are left to discover who he really is. Well, if they would have known their Old Testament, they didn't know their Old Testament. They would have known just who he was. Psalm 107, as we read this, you can't help but look ahead and see Mark chapter 4. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. They rode the waves. They went, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Who is it that is in the boat with them? It is the Lord of Psalm 107. He alone has the power to do this. But notice the disciples in this story are not filled with thankfulness like Psalm 107 encourages us to be. Instead, ESV says they are filled with a great fear. As Jesus rebuked the sea and then turns and offers them a mild rebuke, says they're filled with a great fear. And it's interesting that the, the mega fear, the third mega, does not come in light of the storm. But it comes after the storm is stilled. The greatest fear is not the storm, but it's the one who calmed the storm. And while that might seem strange to us, really that is where the fear belongs. Because it is obvious in this story who is the greater one. And it's not the storm but it's the one who stilled the storm. And now they are left to figure out who this one really is. Alistair Begg said that with every storm, we have the opportunity to rediscover along with the disciples who Jesus really is. Every storm gives us the opportunity to rediscover, to be reawakened to the fact that Jesus really is Lord of all. 
The other day I was listening to a sermon, and actually I was reading the manuscript of this sermon, and the, the main point of the sermon was basically that when we see Jesus in the Gospels, what we see is what we are capable of. When we see Jesus, we see what someone who is in right relationship with God should be like. Because after all, Jesus was just a man just like us, filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. So when we see Jesus, we see our potential. And that's a, that's a theology that is running rampant in our culture right now. Jesus was fully man. We already mentioned that. But make no mistake about it, Jesus was fully God. And nowhere in the Gospels do we see the disciples look at Jesus and say or make any suggestions that they are looking at what they possibly could become. Instead, the response is what we see here. This man is nothing like we can become. This man is completely different from us. This man is completely other. Think about that definition of holy. He is holy. And that doesn't change after the resurrection. In fact, think of Peter when it came time for his execution. History tells us that when he found out that he was going to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to be killed the way that Jesus was killed. I am nothing like Jesus is what he was saying in essence. Don't confuse us. So he was crucified upside down. James and Jude, who were the half-brothers of Jesus, referred to themselves as the servants of Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible do we find disciples during the ministry of Jesus or after the ministry of Jesus putting themselves anywhere close to the same level of Jesus, and neither should we. R.C. Sproul writes that if Christ in his majesty were to knock on your door this morning, you would not say to him, hey, buddy, come on in. Rather, you would fall on your face. When the resurrected Christ in His glory and the manifestation of His holiness appears, all creatures will fall at His feet because He is other. He is holy. That means not only do people tremble at His voice, but seas that have no ears to listen to His commands and winds that have no knowledge to know enough to stop blowing when He says, Be still. And winds that have no knowledge know enough to stop blowing when He says, Be still. That is our Lord. The last and final lesson of this passage comes or combines two of, of J.C. Ryle's points. The last lesson is this. Jesus is tender in dealing with his weak and fearful disciples. Jesus is tender in dealing with his weak and fearful disciples. The first thing we notice in this point and with this story is that his disciples, like usual, are not stellar examples of faith and trust in Jesus. Which is another reason why, if we think about it, in addition to the detailed account, this is another reason why we know that this story was not made up. If this was a story that was made up later by the disciples trying to portray Jesus and themselves as something that they were not, they they certainly would not have portrayed themselves this way. They would have made themselves look a little better. So we know that this is not a story that they made that they made up. But in this story, the disciples are weak and fearful. In this story, the disciples get angry at Jesus. They doubt his love and care for him, and they're completely overwhelmed in the midst of this storm. This storm. In fact, throughout the Bible, rarely do we find an example of someone who is a perfect example of what faith looks like. So rare, in fact, as Johnny mentioned this morning, that there's only one, and that is Jesus himself. 
But what we find over and over again is that despite our failings, despite our flaws and weaknesses, God is tender with His people. So tender that Isaiah says that a bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. Which I find so comforting because often I feel like a weak, or a, a, a reed that is bruised to the point that it's about to break. So often my wick feels like it's about to go out, especially in the midst of storms. But yet, Jesus is so tender with His people. In this story, Jesus does not say, as we might have if we were Him, once I get to the other side of this lake, I am done with you. I'm finding another group of disciples. He doesn't say, how could you be so blind that you still don't even know who I am? He simply asks them two questions. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is a rebuke, but yet it's a gentle rebuke. But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation for them to trust Him. It's an invitation for them to grow in their faith in Him and to know that even in the midst of the storm, He cares for them. Peter, no doubt, looking back on this and many other such instances of Jesus' tender care to Him, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, Cast all of your cares on Him. Cast all of your anxieties on Him. Throw all of your cares on Him. Because He cares for you. Well, the early church understood these lessons from the sea. If you look at Christian art, the church in the early, if you look at early Christian art, the, the church is often depicted as this picture of Mark chapter four, a, a small boat in the midst of a raging sea. They understood that in the midst of this world they would experience storms. Mark's readers knew that they would experience storms. They were experiencing storms as they were being persecuted under Nero. But yet, despite the storms and despite their small vessels, they knew that they did not need to fear. Because on their boat, in the midst of the storm, was the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of all. Well, this morning, as we close, we typically do announcements and then we do a song. But I'd like us to do the song first. And as I went through this passage and came to the, the ending of this song, uh, or ending of this sermon, the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, continued to come to my mind. And I know often we kind of our minds are beginning to think about lunch and begin to think about where we're going next as we sing this final song. But I'd like to use this song as kind of a way for us to respond to this passage and a way for us to seal this message on our hearts. So if you would, I'd like to invite you to stand and sing with me this song, and then I'll invite Alan to come up for announcements.